Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Take off 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. 
I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode of Redinka, we get on someone who has become one of the most heard voices in the game today. Danny Morrison, and I'm a uh, TV commentator around the globe. He had a 10-year career for New Zealand, bowled with Richard Hadley before becoming the IPL court jester. On this podcast, we talk about his history, drop catches, a tough period for New Zealand, his batting, a lot about ducks, and how his mother inspired his commentary. Just a quick note on the audio for this one. Danny Morrison recorded this pretty much on the beach in the Maldives because of obvious reasons. He can't get back into Australia at the moment. So the sound quality is maybe not quite as good as you may be used to on this show. I'm going to start with one of my pet peeves. Don't worry, it's not attacking you. I think it's pro Danny Morrison. Every time I've ever commentated with Alan Wilkins, I go out of my way to mention that he took 243 first-class wickets because I think that Alan Wilkins was a brilliant first-class cricketer and now is known just as Mr. Smooth Welsh voice. You <laughs> took 286 international wickets, and I feel that at times when I follow your commentary, your cricket is almost never even mentioned. Is that something that bothers you or have you just moved on? It just doesn't matter now. You're Danny Morrison, international commentator. <laughs> Jared, interesting. I don't see it like that sometimes because people often ask that because, you know, you had an international career first and it was, let's call it, pretty much 10 years off and on. And then commentary, I suppose. Now, it's been a couple of decades, so you can see why it dominates uh, because it's gone for twice as long. And I think this fast, the crazy world, particularly with T20, um, you, cer- you certainly sort of the, the fans will go, that's who he is, that's what he's about, and that's all we know he's about. So you just rock and roll with it. You took the eight most test wickets of any New Zealand bowler. Obviously, there's a, a crop of New Zealand seamers coming through at the moment. It's, that's quite an achievement. I mean, at one stage, you were right up there. You, you, know, you weren't far away from number one. Obviously, number one, was you were never going to reach to that uh, with, with <laughs> Mr Hadley. We can come on to him in a moment. But you did have a phenomenal international career. Well, I'd like to say, and people look at you and go, well, look, he was look, a very good trier, and then on his day, you could have fluctuations of form that favoured you at times, and, I, and I'm really honest about that. Look, I suppose you break it down, and I'm not really a big stats guru, Jared. I'm, uh, you know, I think um, I took 10 fifers, and only one of them was overseas in the West Indies, and that's why it stands out in my head uh, way back in '96. Um, is because, you know, for us Kiwis, we tended to need the ball to grip a little, a bit like English conditions. And when I think about playing at home, like everyone's so successful at home because it's your own backyard and you know the environment so well and you grew up in it, so you should be good in it. It sort of doesn't really sort of, I suppose, freak me out given what's happened post my playing days that you think, well, Look, you know, I had a great time and, I, you know, you, you wanted to do well. And I think the ultimate goal as a teenager, as a kid who was 13, 14, was to perhaps play for your country one day and really give it a fair crack. When a lot, obviously, poo-hooed me um, and gave me a lot of stick at high school and laughed, which, you know, you just got on with. And I just sort of rear vision mirror, let's keep moving forward. 
You started very young in your international career and you played one year of county cricket and it didn't quite stick. I think you played for Lanks, so quite a good team as well. Do you think maybe if you started a little bit later, had a little bit more experience around the world, you would have been a bit of a more complete bowler? Because for those who don't remember, you had a bit of pace and you obviously, you moved the ball away from the right-handers. You weren't the tallest bowler, but you got them to skid through a little bit. I always thought that you were a very top quality bowler. When I look at it, I think you look at county cricket, particularly when that South African isolation was on through the 70s and 80s with the development of the West Indies and a lot of those South Africans playing in England and the county circuit, then you've got a lot of the great Pakistani guys coming in, uh, as well as uh, a mixture of Aussies and Kiwis. It was really tough to get a, a spot there. And, of course, it was only one player. You didn't have the specialists of today doing T20 or you'll play 50 overs or you'll be more of a, a Red Bull specialist. So there were little opportunities for that. So I was actually really grateful. I actually got one go at it. That was part one of a dream. And look, sadly for me, being somewhat vertically challenged, as my dear PE teacher said, look, Morrison, you're going to have to wake up and smell a coffee. Um, instead of being circumcised, you've had your legs cut off. So it was always going to be difficult for me to get bounced and run in and be, you know, um, truly outstanding. But, you know, that was a great thing for me to fight with and just get on with. Um, and as you said, you know, look, I was nippy enough and could swing it out and then ask questions. And then you develop those skills later on. So really for me, the groin thing was a big issue. Uh, for people either watching or listening to this later on, I had my first hernia there at Lancashire, so I was grateful for them for that at the County Cricket Club, uh, paid for that with private surgery. Then I had a laparoscopic procedure in 94, and to add to the 246, the trifecta, I had a, a ductal tendon release. So that whole moving centre thing was very demanding. And that very first uh, hernia, I mean, I only lasted really half the season at Lancashire, the sort of July, and that was frustrating. But I look, I was truly grateful, and you did. You learnt a lot in terms of, again, thinking about using the crease and bowling again with different balls, again, the Duke versus Kookaburra. And it really was. There was those other little subtle nuances, particularly for me developing a slow outswinger and, you know, as a change-up rather than just cutters that you see today in T20. There were subtle little swingers, drifters, rather than trying to cut it so much. So they were great to learn off people and watch Wazi Nakron and, and Wakar at times and then just speak to other bowlers on the county circuit. So that's where we learned so much of that trade. Uh, whereas today, as we know, Jared, you know, you've got so much T20 franchise cricket that guys will sit around the dressing room because now they spot dressing mm-hmm. rooms regularly and can pass on that knowledge. You said you don't look at Stats Guru much. I had a bit of a look at your numbers. It's quite clear when you go through your career that you were an above-average one-day bowler. Perhaps if you come through in a later era, you'd be thought of as completely different. You took a wicket every 36 balls in ODI cricket. Is that because you took it more seriously, or do you think the white ball just suited you a little bit better because of the way you bowled? This is such a great interview because I think I'm a, I was a lot better test bowler. But you'll have to dive back, and I'd love you, stats guru, <laughs> to go back in archives and see how many drop catches in test match cricket that were off my bowling from 1987, late 87, right through to when I stopped my last test match against the Poms in 97. Because people go, oh, you know, what a knob. You know, what do you want to bring that up? Well, I tell you why. Because if you go through my career, that amount of, one innings test matches that I was involved with, out of 48 test matches, I was in five winning test matches. Three of them were for the great Sir Richard Hadley. So there's only two that I was involved with. And then I laugh and I look at, you know, you think about stats. I, I mentioned that I'm not a stats guru. Well, that's the one stat for me that, if you like, has given me this haircut. 
is because I pulled my hair out so much. You may be old enough to remember, in 1993, after a great series in New Zealand against Australia, we held on to the Trans-Tasmans, one all. So I got a seven-foot and a six-foot Eden Park, again, New Zealand condition, and then got three wickets in three test matches at Perth, Hobart, and then Brisbane didn't get a test wicket there. So when I look at the amount of drop catches in that series alone, and then the one-day series they dropped, and I'll never forget Ben, I'm going, I think they've broken his heart finally. Because we changed that side so regularly, Jared, that our slip cordon wasn't solid like it was with Jeff Crow, Jeremy Coney, who was a very good slipper for Hadley, and whether that was Martin Crow at different times in there, John Reed in the gully, you know, that very settled side in those early mid 80s, right through to 87, 88. And so when I look at that, that's probably the one thing out of my whole career that irks me a little bit. Is my average bowling is nearly 35, when I mm. think I'm better than that. I think I'm more late 20s. If I'm really, you know, if we if we held on, and at times I'll be admitting myself, at times we didn't quite bowl well enough, or our batters couldn't de- deliver more than enough for us. So it'd be a great stat to go back in and see how many single innings is that I bowled in at the opposition, and so. You know, that's just the, the reality, too, of that side in the early 90s. Once Hadley had finished and you lost Hadley, Sneddon, Chatfield finished in 89. But we really had quite a revolving door policy of quicker bowlers that came and went. Chris Kens had his, his own issues after that test match in 89. I think about Murphy Sewer, who was a very good left-arm talent. Willie Watts, Chris Pringle was a one-day specialist. Uh, you know, you had Richard Petrie, you had Stuart. You, I could go on and on. And we had a lot of guys coming in and out. Simon Dull started in 92, 93, or well, 93 more. And then he had a lot of injuries with his knees. Um, I had the groin issues a little bit later in Italy, so around late 94 into 96. But I finished by the beginning of 97. Um, so I also probably look at Judd as that we didn't play as consecutively as now a lot of test matches. So that's another great step. You look at Test Match Cricket, is that the Aussies and the Poms played five matches, a lot of Ashes, that's just a given. But even against India and Australia, was a lot of the time you could have four matches, and we never really played in those. So we only had three or a couple of one-off situations, I recall, playing in. Um, or you suddenly had you know just two Test Matches here and there, or just three if you're lucky, and then one day cricket dominated. So for me... When I look back out of my skill set, I think for me, Test cricket was really where it was at for me and I, in terms of hurrying up people, having less variety because I got in close to the wicket and emulated my idol, which was Dennis Lilly, and Richard Hadley, I had great grace to play with and fortune to be alongside and learn from, um, to get in close a lot and then use the crease of it. So... So this is a fascinating conversation because I've never really discussed this publicly much at all because I've just gone, you know, bollocks, let's just get on with it. And, you know, you know, it was such a long time ago in the rear vision mirror that people don't quite, yeah, it's fascinating to ask you, oh, you've played a bit of test cricket. Oh, look, I said, you played 48. I would have loved to have played 60 off because of their groin problems. I, I think I missed about 17 or 18. We went through once with a guy called one of the other stats guys, another Ian Smith in New Zealand, um, not the commentator, silly. I played alongside. Um, so there was a lot of things when I look back on that that were, you know, have they irked me? No, not the irked me. It was just, I think it was just frustrating 
We dropped a lot of catches. We were very inconsistent. We were known as the Wild Bunch uh, in those early 90s. We had a hell of a good time. Sponsored by a brewery, like Australia, when they had 4X. It was such a different landscape, Jared, that you, you know, you still look very serious. You trained pretty hard, and I did, because uh, I had to, you know, five foot nothing, uh, and stay fit and run in and try and hurl a, quick, a cricket ball quickly uh, was always going to be challenging, massively. That was one of the reasons I asked you about county cricket, because you mentioned it when you were talking about how many tests Australia and England and now India play. You look at your record, it's just not a lot of matches, and I know you talked about your groin and, and all that sort of stuff, but... I wonder, especially in that era, but I, there's a lot of teams around the world that still have this. It's hard to develop as an international cricketer when you play a two-test series and then you've got you know a bunch of other things coming up. And you had that opportunity with county cricket, as you said, it was a, it was an incredible era. I mean, you would have been there not that far away from when what was it? Was it Macram was the number one seamer at Lancashire and Patrick Patterson was the number two seamer? I mean, they had you know ridiculous options all these counties. But I suppose when you're looking at it, it's a very hard thing for you to develop. And, you know, Richard Hadley, if you go back in the first part of his career, he was a very, very good cricketer. When he went and played with Nottingham week in, week out and had all that, he became an incredible cricketer. And I wondered if that for you, if you'd have just played more cricket, you would have been able to pick up those other skills a little bit quicker and, and overcome your height. And to be fair, your height probably would have been an advantage as well with LBWs and those sorts of things as well compared to, you know, some of the other guys. Well, I look at it, and in fact, I've just had this conversation recently, was that one of the guys here, the biomechanist, is that you should have placed your feet down quicker, like Malcolm Marshall. So the classic is a shorter guy like that. To run through the crease um, is so much more advantageous in terms of your timing through the crease. And the other one we talked about was Shane Bond. Now, admittedly, Shane Bond's 6'2", so he's a good build anyway for a quick bowler. But his feet planted very quickly. He put the, the back foot down, the front foot down quite quickly, whereas a lot of us had watched the great Dennis Lee and Richard Hadley, um, you know, you think about those guys with quite big, long delivery leaps um, to execute what they were trying to do. And so, you know, you just followed that because you watched them on TV and they were very inspiring as a uh, 10, 11-year-old way back in those mid-70s. So, when I look at that, you're right. If we'd played more cricket and got an opportunity, and the only reason we got an opportunity was the great was in Akron was they were touring. They just won that Cricket World Cup in 92, and they were, had the five tests of the summer. It was a very long full summer. So Lancashire needed an overseas player. And, and like you think about the amount of guys that were asked, again, Patrick was tired and he was a bit sort of hard to get hold of. And a couple of South Africans, I think, um, had injuries, fell over, had something else to do. Um, I remember Stephen Jack, I think he was even asked before me um, because they had such a real South African connection. Steve Jeffries was another one who played, another left arm who played for Lancashire, uh, South African. So, you know, there's a, when you look at the South Africans, very strong um, relationship with the English counties because, of course, they weren't playing international test cricket. That's why that was their stage and they really did perform and they were hungry and they were keen and they were driven. Um, so a lot of counties had that relationship with the South African connection. So, you know, by grace, um, it was just the timing. England were in New Zealand. Um, I remember Big Bob Bennett was a Lancashire um, uh, chairman, and he was also the manager of the England cricket team in 92. So I sat and spoke with Neil Fairbrother, who was the captain of Lancs, and there was an opportunity. And I just I said, absolutely. I said, yeah, for sure. I'd love, I'd love to come and learn the craft and then play for that great club which was at Old Trafford. And it was, it was a great time in life. And I was 
you know, I was engaged to Kimberley and um, we lived there. It was just brilliant. So there was all of that craft learning, as you said, Jared. Um, it would have been nice to keep doing it. Um, but at the same time, I just – and just a realist as well. There was just so many great players that were on that circuit um, to do because the, the, the game hadn't quite stepped up until the, this new millennial, the new millennium, and you've got so much more of another um, format to deal with. So it's just so much more congested, whereas back then – Jeez, we're talking nearly 30 years ago. It's quite scary, isn't it? Um, you know, that just wasn't, it wasn't around. The other thing that you touched on earlier was the losses. You said you had five wins. Is that what you said in your... Oh, correct. So, and three of them were with, with Hadley. And then we had Pakistan 94. And prior to that same year before, that was 93. There was the one against Australia. Now, I'd like you, because I won't know, but I reckon it's true, possibly as a stat, that was that the last time New Zealand beat Australia in New Zealand in a test match. Like we've beaten them in Australia. I remember that one in Hobart in 2011 because I was living in Aussie obviously by then. I'm just trying to think, was that the last time New Zealand actually beat Australia in a test match to have a, a, a tied series? It'd be fascinating to know because way back in March of 93, New Zealand didn't play a series against the Aussies in New Zealand until 2000. And I remember going to that as a, at a luncheon ceremony. And that's 2000. And then again, I don't think they played until 2005. And then again in 2010. Um, and then you think from 2010, again, when Baz McCullum finished, didn't he, in 2016, he got that fastest test 100 ever. So when you look at the spasm of over 30, well, almost 30 years, 1993, to you know, having a, a full test series of three tests, three tests, a full test, three tests, and it's not that many test match series in New Zealand with Australia to have a victory, because as I say, there's the there's that one in Hobart, and then there's the one in uh, there's that draw that got that 2015 series in Australia was just full of draws, and then a loss, which was the day night test match in Adelaide. Don't start talking about that with uh, umpires not being able to see. Jeez. <laughs> Nigel, don't okay, Nigel. I'm still having therapy, Mr. Long. Um, so uh, it's amazing what you remember to see live, isn't it, um, these days? So, uh, yeah, Jared, I reckon it'd be fascinating to know if that was, in fact, New Zealand's last ever test match over Australia in New Zealand. It is. I just had a look. You're right. I mean, there haven't been a lot of tests, which, which go back to what we were talking about a minute ago. There haven't been a lot. And you took a, a big six-fer. That, that's my memory in that match? Does that sound right? Yeah, that's right. And I remember Dipak opened the bowling in the second innings, and then we're just laughing about that, having a beer here in the Maldives on our transition way back to Australia. Um, Tuppy ran past one. Who was talking about that? Was it, was it Hados? Who was it? Someone was laughing about that going on about that, that he ran past Dipper and they gave him so much stick. Um, it was like a run out, but he just sort of went out to the milk bottles out and just stayed out and the door closed. Bizarre. Um, but you're right, we won that and that allowed us to draw the Series 1 all and hold the Trans-Tasman Trophy for the last time we've held it. Must be. So that period, up until about 93, so in, in the 80s, you could make a very, very good claim that New Zealand's the third best team in the world in Test cricket, and obviously, you know, incredible up until the 92 World Cup, had a lot of success. 
You then the team does drop off, as your record sort of suggests. Uh, what is it like to be representing your country when you were losing that much and you've just had success? You've come out of probably or unarguably the greatest era that New Zealand cricket's ever had. What is it like to be running into bowl with Richard Hadley now off retired? As you said, all these different guys coming in, getting injured. Uh, Martin Crowe has left. And you being the talisman, I mean, you two of the wins that you played in, you took big wickets as well. Like you, a, a lot of pressure on you personally. You were one of the more senior players probably by that point also. Hmm. It's funny, Jude. My, my recollection, and, and, you know, I've actually got not a bad memory at times. Um, we could be selected. But you just got on with it. It was that, you know, those guys... You know, no one can play forever, and certainly Richard Hadley tried his best. He was 39, for goodness sake, there in, in Birmingham in 1990. It's extraordinary played that long. But I remember speaking with him at times, and, you know, you, you get those sort of guys that come along once in a generation, and particularly Hadley from New Zealand. And when you look at John Wright, who played at Derby for a long time, and Michael Holding and Peter Kirsten and all that, and then you had Martin Crowe, playing and making his way with a bit of county cricket in 84 and filled in for Viv and Joel and then took over that in 87. So he, he was around quite a bit playing some of that to get experience. Jeff Howarth, of course, with his connection at Surrey. So there was that, that nucleus of those guys that played a lot of county cricket. You could see how that helped through the 80s. So they really were. They were I mean, they were seen as a lot of those guys were folk heroes. You know, Chris Kenders, Father Lance, big hitting sixes at the MCG and that shoulderless Excalibur back. So it was fascinating to grow up through that and then suddenly come out the other side as a teenager and then play with those guys. And I do look back on that and it's funny because you look at it and you sort of pinch yourself and you go, good grief. You know, you're sort of playing alongside your teenage heroes that you're finishing high school with and you go, hang on a minute, now you're back in the side with them, particularly late 87, 88, 89, 90, I had a good three years with a lot of those senior guys, Bracewell, Sneddon, but you and Chatfield, certainly Richard Hadley till the middle of 90, and then all of a sudden they're gone, and then we had this very young side, and Warren Lees was the coach, Marty Crow took over, so it was again, and you know the big thing about it, I reckon, Chad, if I'm really honest about this, is that our number one sport is rugby, and when you live in, live in New Zealand, brought up in New Zealand, breathe it, is that it dominates, and it's huge. And then I remember Shane Thompson. Now, Tomo got left out on that Western Indies tour with a shoulder problem. And then it was later in the night, and they, we had to go, he had to go off and get an MRI. But back then, it was very difficult. It was more of an X-ray. And we were in St. Vincent, for goodness sake. But the management, there was a lot of, a bit of a crisis going with the team, the management versus some of the players. And it wasn't easy. And so then he obviously limped out of that tour, and then it was all, it was all sort of, he was all done. And then I remember seeing him a couple of years after that. And I just finished playing as he goes, it's fascinating. Isn't it? Once you, once you walk away from this, Danny, and you, and you really look at it in the cold light of day, it just says, just pales, really, considering what those big all black legends are about and how rugby and the all blacks dominate and are such a big brand in a little country. And so, yes, we were the sort of number one summer code, but there was always that about with rugby. And Super Rugby had just started uh, in 1996 with the Auckland Blues and the whole big franchise thing of Super Rugby. So there was all of that happening, uh, and it was bubbling away in those early 90s to happen and break away, and then that Rugby World Cup in 95, and then Super and all that professionalism. So prior to all that, it was massive. And then I look back, and, you know, we toured overseas a lot, and, you you know, where it was subcontinent quite a bit, 
I think about Pakistan ninety, India in ninety five, uh, bits and pieces of you know, there was Sri Lanka thrown in there a bit, Bangladesh obviously weren't around, went charge a little bit. You know, back then, um, the exposure wasn't what it is today. And so I think when you look at it, it's not on that huge scale. So for a lot of us, whilst it was, you know, there was pressure, of course it was, and you wanted to perform and you wanted to stay on the side. And because it was such a revolving door policy at times, you thought, geez, you know, these guys are getting injured or the form's slightly out. And, you know, it was at times a little fickle. But at the same time, from my corner where I was sitting, um, I was just, I was just trying to do what I could do. And that's what Martin Crowe was just asked. I want you to do what you can do, Danny, and stay fit as much as you can, and this is your job, and this is what you want to do. And so he was very pragmatic about a lot of stuff like that, and very good in that regard, because he was up here, and everyone else were all down here. So he got frustrated at times. But I think that also helped in the scenario, Jared, that we really were there doing what we could do and we're, you know, we're realistic at times, you know, and then you could have your say, particularly in New Zealand, was a one-day series, you know, possibly a test match, because you'll know better than most being a, a, a historian of the game, is that test match cricket was really quite trench warfare. You know, if you got an honourable draw, man, it was like a win today, and you hung in there and just hung in there and survived and got a bit of a kick out of it and said, well, you know, we didn't we wouldn't lose. There might have been a bit of weather in it, and the pitch was so flat and grotty, <laughs> you could hang on. But until a certain rock stars come along, like Warney, and McGrath and that combination and, and the other protagonists around that and the two W's were pretty freaky and then you had Alan Donald bursting because they got re-entry. Um, you had some very good bowlers um, that could take 20 wickets, whereas for us little old Kiwis, it wasn't quite the same. We didn't quite have the superstars or the quality of bowlers that could suddenly, at the end of the day, take 20 wickets quite regularly. Let's go on to your batting a little bit because I find your batting fascinating for three different reasons. Wikipedia says, I only found this out when I was doing research for this. I, I had never heard this one, that you once released a duck caller with your name on it really? uh, because you tied the world record for the most ducks. Is First, I just have to know if that's true. Yeah, yeah. I came with a lovely little clear thing and it was a, it was the turquoisey blue because back then New Zealand cricket, remember the one-day outfits wanted to get away from the grey and they went with that sort of teal colour, which is supposed to be a Pacifica. I've got one because it's, it's one of the worst shirts ever made. Yeah, it looked like a tight, funny teal colour with a fern on it. <laughs> and so the duck caller was that colour, I think, with the, the black other end on it where you go <laughs> and blow through. And so they had this duck caller, this whole merchandise, because my testimonial season was always going to be about fun and a little bit zany and a bit out there for obvious reasons. And so we had... Danny the Duck character come out. Well, you, you know, you've now tied the record, so let's just have fun with it. So we had duck on the menu as a food for luncheon. We had chocolate little ducks, little ducks, and then we had these duck callers from New Zealand cricket. And I tell you what, we were there because it's their old Aussie, good Sydney cider, which was Neil Maxwell, who's part of Frontier now in more recent decades with his marketing and other companies. He was the marketing manager for New Zealand cricket, that he came into that around that middle of 96. Once there was a big shift and a change, Steve Rickson came in as coach. Max almost came along with that package, if you like, Neil Maxwell. And so he loved the whole concept. I was having this big celebratory testimonial season, 96-97, which ended up being my last playing season. With duck ties, uh, with this big duck banner. I had these miniature bats, right, from Gunnamore. They thought, oh, Danny's a bit... 
bit tongue and bit naughty, you're going to put a hole in it. And there's these 20-inch bats. You see the smaller ones. Well, these are the bigger ones. And they, God bless them, Dunmore, Pete Wright, Dunmore up there in Trent Bridge. He sent me out, and God, we could have had thousands. Of, I reckon he must have sent me, I've seen about 300. There's a big box, maybe about three or 400. Anyway, and I got one of the dads at Britain Winyard, who that was the big company who bought all these different um, sports paraphernalia in and sports goods. And they, he, one of the dads had this lovely, um, uh, almost like a bandsaw. And so he cut the circle at the bottom of the, uh, the bat, the 20-inch good-sized miniature. And so that was like the ball had blown through there, which they said, Danny, it's not going to bode well for sales. It looks like we've got weak bats. <laughs> the bone, the hole. But the whole synergy around it was, of course, the hole, and that's why you've got so many ducks. Because my bats, you know, they, they, they didn't want to give me good bats. They'd give me these old, old baggy ones batting down at 11. And um, it, it was a lot of fun, and we sold those. And they, it was just, we just, it was something different. And I think it was making light of all the tough stuff we'd had as a side, losing quite a bit. Sponsors were very loyal. The bank at the time, BNZ, now New Zealand or ANZ, but that's BNZ back then and in the nineties. They were superb, and we had, and they embraced it too. And so I had a, a wine come out with stumps on it, going as a label. But certainly the duck caller was beauty. And it, again, just fitted in the magazine, which was the Cricketers Week. So you can imagine us cricketers, we're always on those Women's Day magazines, for goodness sake, what was going on. And so I had this Danny and Die, it's a lie. And luckily, God willing, it came out before Dear Die passed. So this was 96 it came out. She passed on the 31st of August, 1997 in Paris. So I'd had it out for at least a good amount of time. But it was Danny and Die, it was a lie on the cover. Because, you know, there was that whole thing with Will Carling and a couple of other names and stuff of celebrity-type guys that she possibly could have um, had as, as lovers. And so we had a heap of fun with it. And so it was, again, just poking fun at yourself and not taking life too seriously. Talking about that, it's incredible that you tied the world record for the most ducks, but you also were a constant night watchman. So the reason I got you on originally, if you remember, was because I'm doing the entire history of New Zealand opening batters because... New Zealand opening batters as a species is almost the most interesting species of human being I've ever come across. <laughs> and when I'm looking through this, at this stage, I've looked at everyone from New Zealand who's ever opened in a test match, and your name's there. Yes. And I was like, how does this happen? <laughs> Take me through it. So 1990 versus India. It was a great test match, actually. Speaking of uh, one of those five that I've been involved in, was February of 90 because... Richard Hadley had got Sanjay Mandraker out as his 400. So Hadley became the first man to 400. So he got past that milestone. When you think about recently with what Jimmy Anderson, 600, and Glenn McGrath and Walsh and those guys going past 500 for quick bowlers. Quite extraordinary. So Hadley got his 400th test wicket and the celebrations have been going on. But towards the end of it, they only managed to make us score two, I think, to win the test match, you can imagine John Wright, who was captain of the team, and of course he was an opening batsman, and the other guy was Trevor Franklin. So though hilarious, Wright, he just yells over at Mark Sneddon, who was 10 and I was 11, we're going to reverse the batting order. So you two North Shore mongrels, because we used to play club cricket together, state cricket for Auckland, and then uh, and played some international cricket together. So there we go. So you two could go out there, and we faced Manoj Prabhaka, now, Sneed thought he'd be just a glory seeker and just smash it and finish it, but he got an edge, and his back went flying. 
So Sneeds' bat goes flying, the ball lobs up and goes sort of like over the slip cord and lobs straight over. And they get one, so we don't cross for a single. So I've still got a you know, face, and we're going, hang on a So we're laugh- everyone's laughing at Sneeds throwing his bat away and trying to be a glory seeker and slice it somewhere for four, yeah, win the game. So he got down the other end, and I'm like, oh, great. So I think I face ended up blocking one. And then Barker, who bowls those big booming in swingers, I went to just, oh, easy game. I just ease us onto the leg side, going with the swing, going with the tide, got a leading edge, went through cover and ran through some loose. <laughs> so Snez and I crossed, and there was the winning run. And it's a great trivia question because there's a couple of Aussies that laugh about it. He goes, Morrison, I was at a function at the SCG, and your horrible name came up. And they said, Can you name this cricketer? Open the bowling in a test match and open the batting in the same test match and hit the winning run. What? So there you go. So we just crack up. And, and, and even I'd forgotten about that. Go, God, who was that? You know, it's you, you idiot. Is it? And you laugh and you crumbs. So, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, bizarre, isn't it? But that's cricket. That's what you love about cricket. It throws up all those crazy old stories. That's one of the things, like, going through the New Zealand openers, that's one of the things you guys lost a lot of games in the nineties and in the well thirties through to the seventies really. Yeah. And yet there's always a story like that, that comes along. Like there was a lot of stories about players like Glenn Turner, not being treated correctly and Richard Hadley going off to be professional and all those sorts of things. But in the middle of it, it feels like no matter what happened in New Zealand cricket, there was a lot of fun there. And you've kind of turned that into a profession in commentary. Haven't you? You've taken all the fun from your personality and just be like, well, they're going to put a camera on me and uh, they're going to pay me a lot of money. I'm going to do this for them on the camera now. Yeah, and when I look at that for, Jared, for T20, and particularly the start of the IPL, because it really was with Sony who had the first decade of it. And so what it was, it was the, the marriage of Bollywood and cricket together. And they went with that side of it. And that was part of the showmanship of it all because of the grandiose stuff that was going on in the studio and the host's sideline who started to become very famous now in their own right doing other things worked well and because I also over the years explaining myself <laughs> why this come about is that my mother's from a thespian background so she did a, a drama diploma at Auckland University in 1978 so I was 12 so I was around all these thespian types my mother's boyfriend at the time ran the lighting show at the Mercury Theatre, which is a big live theatre uh, of that lovely old era of theatre in Auckland. So we would, there was, I would go regularly to spot shows backstage in the lighting booth, and then we'd moved. And so I was between playing a bit of rugby and cricket developing, and in between that, so you're talking 1977, 78, my mother sent me to pantomime-type classes, drama classes, that you'd go and make things with pottery and you do arty different things rather than just the old classic rugby racing bear scenario so mine was about then going to this maiden theatre on a Saturday morning catching the ferry from Devonport with mum and we'd go across and do that and my, and my sister um, who was a little bit younger so she made I don't remember all the time coming to that she was a bit younger so that's if you like been part of my blueprint, it's in my veins as it were, to then ham it up in front of the camera or get dressed up and have fun. Now, I remember Malcolm Conn, couldn't believe this, back in Sydney, he obviously seen me on Fox, dressed up as one of the masquerade dancers in St Kitts, and that was about 2015, and lo and behold, I remember that one. my mother's on the phone laughing with my wife, 
back on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. And my son at the time is watching, going, Kim, here's your husband. That's what he's doing for a living. There he is. There's your husband on telly. And the cricket's on because, of course, it's a night game in St. Kitts, which is about lunchtime in Queensland and, and on the eastern boardwalk of Australia. And there I am. They've thrown down to me, and I've just dressed up in all this colourful stuff, which, again, T20 lends itself to them. And I suppose in a way, Jared, I've massively resonated with that audience, and that's particularly the subcontinent and the West Indies because of the flow of music and dancing and dressing up and actually having fun as part of the, in inverted commas, cricketainment. Got to be um, swimmers, got to be board shorts, gone up to one of those blow-up things that some cats have gone down the slide and stuff and then a piece of camera or hopped in the swimming pool and the boys have had the boom up and they've tied it to the end of an old big room and had a chat to me in the swimming pool. I've had a chat there holding the product. So you, you do, and I think T20 for me, obviously is, is, is a love and you, and you enjoy doing it and it's so much on the circuit but I think all of those early formative years where my mother took me along to Maiden Theatre and, and all that exposure was great for me it was, it was a great learning to be able to be comfortable in front of camera and then almost like go into a whole genre of acting come working come expressing yourself to get it across and I think the subcontinent market love it. I mean, it really, it grates with the Kiwis, Aussies and English. I mean, it's it's not about, you know, why you can't, look, just get to me seriously. And I've actually recently got into a couple of things where I just go back to somebody's chip. I wrote, giving you some real bad hate, really. I'm like, at least it's like, it's going, why do you go back to him? Why just, I just go back and say, look, my dear thing, um, Clearly, I've ripped you right up, but I don't mean to. But I just, I'm fascinated to know why that's got under your skin. And if you don't think I should, you know, deliver it like this. And so they come back and, yeah, you know, and I said, well, and then I blow them a kiss or emoji on, on Twitter on the feed. And I'm just like, last time I checked, brother, we're from the same planet, aren't we? And he comes back and has another tirade. You go, and you live in Australia. God, I love you. You know, so then they just, and then they cut you off. So they're the ones that attacked you, and yet they're the ones who are cutting you off and disowning you. I said, oh, doesn't want to talk to me anymore. Okay. So that's where I like to lighten it on lots of fronts and lots of levels, Jared, because I mean, life's too short. I mean, hello, what's going on right now with COVID? I mean, life's too short not to um, actually be entertaining or, or, or actually smile on people's faces because a lot of it's pretty tough and pretty grim. Well, as one son of an actress to a, uh, someone else involved in the theatre, it might explain me as well. Now I'm going to have to think about my mum taking me to all those plays and all my time in lighting oh, rooms and filming them and my yeah. mum making me go uh, up on stage and all that sort of thing. So uh, oh, fascinating interview. Thank you so much for coming on. Lovely, Jared. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.
Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.